sure you've heard the term uh, adding insult to injury. Um, it's, of course, a term that we oftentimes use when, you know, we've gone through a, or are maybe going through a hard enough circumstances as it is, and then we sort of feel like somebody else has come alongside and made a bad thing worse, you know, by maybe piling on by something that they say, something that they do, adding insult to injury. Physical therapists will tell you that you can add injury to injury uh, if you uh, fail to heed their good sound counsel and advice. You can add injury to injury. Uh, maybe an orthopedist could tell you much the same. You know, if a bone that had been broken is not setting right, they may, may, may need to add injury to your injury by re-breaking it so that it can be reset in the right way, adding injury to injury. You know, that's possible not just in the, the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm as well, to add injury to injury. Um, you know, when your heart has been broken, it needs to mend right so that further injury won't be inflicted upon you down the road. But of course, it's, it's not just the case of when you've been sinned against, but also when we ourselves are the sinning ones. Um, it, it's, it's not just when uh, the heart is broken, it's when the conscience is guilty. And maybe rightly so. That things need to set right for spiritual mending and healing to take place. Uh, how lonely. How lonely is the sinner. How lonely indeed. What comfort, what he, where, where, where can we find the right comfort, not just any comfort, but the right comfort, the, the true source of, of healing? Well, uh, we're pressing in, really getting going in this series in the book of Lamentations now, and we're in Lamentations 1. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there now with me. If you're trying to find that, it's certainly one of the harder-to-find books in the Old Testament, so I'd say I apologize for that, but it's not my fault. So, um, uh, But if you are trying to find it, it's after a couple of really big books, and that being the book of Isaiah. Uh, there's a few chapters there. Uh, immediately followed by the prophet Jeremiah, and Lamentations, I could, guess you could say, is Jeremiah's little brother. Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it gets so little attention, is that by the time you get done with Jeremiah, you're just done. And uh, Lamentations, nobody spends a lot of time there. Um, Lamentations, I'll call it chapter one. It's actually, you could say, poem one, lament one, however you want to think of it. Hear now the word of God. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. 
All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbor should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy Thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint.
Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us hear. Hear the lament. Understand all that is behind it. All of its significance. Then, in the 6th century B.C. And now, today, here for us. Give us ears with which to hear, we ask. And speak to us, O oh Jesus, through your word, by your spirit. Amen. Here's an axiom. You don't have to write it down, but you do need to understand it. To misread the text is to misunderstand the text and is to misapply the text. To misread the text is to misunderstand the text and is then to misapply the text. Case in point, here's your text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Don't look it up, I'm going to tell it to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know how you've heard that text taught, but I do hope it was not that it was all about the death of a loved one. That is not in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes what that verse is all about. That is actually not about the loss of a loved one, but the loss of innocence. It is not about bereavement, but about repentance. It is about a mourning for sin. That's what Jesus is speaking of there in that passage. It's what Thomas Cranmer wrote of in the 1662 Holy Communion service when he wrote, We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. It's what David Brainerd, the 18th century missionary to the American Indians, wrote in October 1740 in his journal. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning sin. The sin, what sin? Okay, the sin of the world. The brokenness of what we see all around us all the time. Okay, it's part of it. Mourning the sin that we see in the lives of those around us and the people that we care for in particular. And the, the brokenness and the, the mourning that we feel for that. But really, taking it from the big circle to the smaller circle to the closest circle, it has to do with mourning our own sin. Mourning our own sin and grieving that. What, what comfort, what relief can be found for us when we are broken and mourning our sin? The comfort and relief, the only comfort and relief that can be found in the, in the mourning of our sin is the forgiveness of God in Christ. And believe it or not, that's what Lamentations 1 is about. Ultimately. That's ultimately what Lamentations 1 is about, is the, the hope that the mourner of sin can have in the forgiveness of God that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen to the cries again. Verse 9, second part. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is triumphed. Second part, verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. First part, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Lamentations 1 is bound up, unified, tied together by this theme, this longing, this search for comfort. Comfort for a heart that is mourning the sin of the heart. Verse 16. You see, it, it, it comes up in several places, but I'm just going to look right here. Um, for these things I weep. 
My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. You hear what the, the author is saying. There's this longing, there's this aching for this comfort, a comfort that is nowhere in sight except in the one that these laments are being addressed to. And the one who is hearing. Do you know something of that this morning? Today? The hurt in your own heart for your own sin. The burden, the brokenness, the mourning. Do you know anything of that? I've got a message of hope for you. And me too. The Lord is telling us and we are broken and mourning our sin. We can and must look to Him for comfort. And we are broken and mourning our sin. We can and must look to Him for comfort. I want to drill down for a few minutes in, in three points as we process this together and see how this comes out in Lamentations 1. First, the reality of mourning. That's the first thing. The second is the, uh, the cause of a particular kind of mourning. And thirdly, the hope that we so desperately need in our mourning. So first, the reality of mourning. Let's talk about this. I want to look at it from two different perspectives. One would be the historian's perspective. Getting sort of a, uh, I don't want to say objective because it makes it sound subjective is like less than helpful, but okay, a narrative perspective, an historian's perspective. It's something that we, we began to get into last week in the intro, the, the grand survey of the Book of Lamentations and its themes. Um, Israel's history, Israel's history was a rich history indeed, filled with great promise, great potential. They had this calling, blessed by God's grace, to be a blessing to the nations. But they began to presume upon that promise. And they began to think little of it and to understand a little of it. And so they, in the presuming came apostasy. And with the apostasy came an invasion and a fall that had been predicted and promised actually long, long, long before. Um, keep your, your finger here in Jer uh, excuse me, Lamentations 1. I want to take you back to the big brother of Lamentations, Jeremiah 32. And you get a sense of this, of the Lord speaking here. We get an explanation, if you will, as to what's going on and why. These years later, um, Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 28, the Lord says these words to Jeremiah, setting the stage. And we, so it's no surprise then what happens. Uh, verse 28, Jeremiah 32, verse 28, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it. With the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it, 
They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up the sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Okay, there's the, if you will, the historian's perspective, the narrative of how we get to where we are in Lamentations 1. Or if I can put it this way, on the one hand, over here, we have a description of what happened and why. And then you get to Lamentations, and now you have a description of what it felt like. Okay, so over here you have what happened and why, and over here you have this visceral, gut-level, what it felt like, and all the emotions that come out of it. And the, and the author of Lamentations sets it up for us with a series of contrasts just in the first verse. Just listen to this. These contrasts. Once this, now this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Do you hear it? Once, this, now, this. The author of Lamentations is he setting the stage and helping us. He's, he's bringing us to a place of, of expression of mourning, but fully so, full orb, three-dimensional, Nothing held back. Or if you think about soundtracks, if I can just try and make this point in, the, in this fashion. Soundtracks to, to films, right? They, they tend to make or break a film. If you want to have some fun, if it's possible, watch Star Wars without John Williams' soundtrack. It really comes off as kind of corny, actually. Um, Jaws. Remember that? Does that might ring? Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Um, Jaws. Is Jaws the same film without that sound? That bass sound as the fins cutting through the water. No. Indiana Jones. Those stories that, you know, the wonderful adventures, right? They just, dun, 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 you know, and you, you, you have no desire whatsoever to grab the whip and, 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 and all of that stuff unless you've got the soundtrack pulsing. Well, what's the soundtrack? What's the theme of Lamentations? You know what it is? Wind. The sound of wind moving over a desolate prairie. And if you listen closely, weeping. That's the soundtrack of Lamentations. Now, my point in bringing this up is, is that the reality of mourning is, is spoken to here. Life is hard. Life is hard. Becoming a Christian doesn't give you a pass. It gives you the means by which to face hard life, but it doesn't give you a pass. It gives you the resources, but it, there's no just pass, go, collect $200 card. And life is hard. Life is hard enough as it is. Life is all the harder when you feel like no one understands, when no one gets it, 
we see just implicitly here in Lamentations, we have a statement. Someone gets it. So there's been a people that have been there. And if I could go even further, there's a God who's given us a book to people who are there right now going through lament. You know how? Because he's been there. I'm going to get to that in a few minutes. He's been there. And he's speaking this to people too, who are there. So I just want to say again, broken, mourning, can and must turn to God for comfort. But that takes me to the second thing, and that is, the, here's this vital point, and that is, it's not just mourning for anything. It's not just because it's been a bad Monday or Tuesday or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a mourning for a specific kind of mourning, mourning for sin that, that the, we're talking about here in Lamentations. And you see all over the place in chapter 1, verse 18, for instance, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Um, speaks to the reality of, of sin. Uh, it's, it's not something that we ought to trifle with. It's not something we ought to play down. It's not something we ought to, to mock sin. <laughs> what a trite idea. What an old-fashioned concept. Dare not do that. Verses 8 and 9. Listen, listen. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. You see, there's another turn. Contrast, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. You see, implicit in all of this are God's moral standards that, that are real and are universal. They're deeply impressed upon the hearts of, of every human being. There is a general consensus the world over as to what is right and what is wrong. That said, there's also this universal problem. And that is, however deep that those standards are impressed upon our hearts, our default, our inclination, is to go our own way. To live the way we want to, to call our shots and then make our own mess. And you know why we make our own mess as we go our own way? Because you can't resist reality without doing great hurt and harm to yourself. I don't like that wall. Boom! Good luck with that. It's the moral equivalent. So you have this, this sense of the, re, the reality of sin here just spoken of in Lamentations 1, but not just at the weight of it. The crushing weight of it. Verse 12, is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow, like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. There are consequences to sin. That's part of the weightiness of it. Look, just generally speaking, if you spend much of your life as a liar, people will not trust you. If your heart is a heart bent with covetousness, wanting what you don't have and not wanting what you do have, it'll poison you. Generally speaking, just that, 
sin has consequences. But it's not just that specifically speaking. I'm talking about the book of Lamentations. There is a God, a covenantal God, who said, if you do this, this is going to happen. We talked about this last week. And in so doing, he shows himself to be a God of his word. A God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And that may make us uncomfortable, but really that's actually the foundation of our hope, even in that. But that's last week. Okay, but it's not just the weightiness in terms of the consequences. It's also the conscience. It's the conscience. The, the, the author of Lamentations is speaking of that. It's too the, the burden that, that he is feeling here. And why? Why is, he, why is Israel, Jerusalem, Zion beginning to feel it? Because they become awakened, finally. Stirring. Or I should say they've been stirred. They've been stirred from their slumber, no longer turning the back to the Lord, but finally their face. Which, by the way, is not such a bad thing. To have a burdened conscience is not necessarily a bad thing. It can actually be, depending on the circumstances, the best thing. It can actually be a gift of the Lord to you to have a conscience that is burdened. Leprosy. I don't have it, but um, I know a little bit about it. Read a little bit about it. You know, I mean, if, it, it's just basically speaking, it's an infectious disease, somewhat contagious. Uh, this damage that takes place to the nerve endings in the arms and the, and the legs, such that you lose feeling slowly but surely in your hands and in your feet, which then brings further injury and further harm because, you know, you, you put the hand upon the hot stove or you've got the splinter in the bare foot and you feel nothing. So you keep walking on that foot or you don't treat the burn. And it's something like that, you know, in terms of, you know, not all pain is bad. It can wake you up when something's wrong. And it's like that with a, con a guilty conscience. Now, I, I know we need to be careful. I know I I'm just going to quick, like 30 seconds, speak of a, you know, qualifiers. Yes, there's such a thing as false guilt. Yes, there's such a thing as an oversensitive conscience. I understand that. There's also such a thing as an insensitive conscience. That's got, like, dead, callous skin built up around it because it's gone down a certain path so long, so far. And yes, of course, we need to speak much and daily and often to, to ourselves and one another of God's grace, lifting the burden of our guilt. Absolutely. But not then presuming to do license to make light of the guilt and the burden that he has carried away. We need to mourn our sin. We need to mourn our sin and lament over it. And as we do so, God is saying to us, come to me. I'm the only place you can come to really deal with it. Come to me. Which then takes me to the third point. It's, it's, it's important to talk about the reality of mourning. It's important to talk about the cause of this particular kind of mourning. But if we don't talk about this, then we, you know, and forget it. Hope for the mourner. Hope for the mourner. And the hope is found in Christ. Found in Christ's experience that is pointed to in, in, a, in his exile 
and his lament for us. The incarnation, the incarnation was him coming, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, becoming man, fully so. Not appearing to be man, but fully entering into the human condition. He came as us, but not just as us, but for us. So we move, I now move one big word to another big word. Incarnation to atonement. His living and dying in our place, in our behalf. He came as us, for us, fully entering into our condition and fully carrying away all our guilt and shame. Now, those things alone, we could do the benediction right now, because that alone is worth, well worth our contemplation and meditation but there are implications for the mourning of sin with those things. There's insight, great insight that we gain as we think about lamentations. Lamentations and how, again, it points to Jesus and his lament, Jesus and his exile. St. Augustine, let's put it this way. When I say the new and the old, I'm talking about the New Testament and the Old Testament. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Got that? I'll say it again. The new, New Testament, is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Translation. We learn much about the other from one another. By looking at the old, we learn something about the new. By looking at the old, we learn something about... I'm getting myself confused now. Um... But you get the idea. There's insight that we gain in lamentations considering how does that inform us about the mission and what Jesus says, who he is and what it is he is. He is the friend of sinners. That's my, where I'm going with this. He is the friend of sinners. And what a friend indeed. Jesus knows what it is to be broken and to mourn for sin because he carried ours upon his shoulders as the sin bearer. He knows what it is to be broken and to mourn for sin because he carried ours. Now with that in mind, I'm going to reread verses 12 through 14. And I want you to hear this, and if you've got a Bible in front of you, read it for yourself and hear Jesus speaking these words. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it to descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Friends, Hear the lament of the friend of sinners over the sin that he carried. Your sin, my sin, our sin that he carried away. There is such rich resource there for us. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. I'm going to read this quote to you from your quotes and notes. I think it's the one at the top. I'll put it this way. Friendship arises out of a mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste 
which the others do not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Now, I'm going to rip that right out of its context. And if Jack Lewis was here, he'd be okay with it, I can assure you. I want you to think about this. As you feel the, the lament and the mourning of your own sin, and you see the sin bearer standing there before you, and you can look at him and honestly say, you should look at him if you're seeing it rightly, and honestly say, what? You too? Not that he sinned in and of himself. It's not his own sin, you understand. He committed no sin. But he's fully born yours. So he knows what it is to mourn it. What? You too? He is the friend of sinners and we dare not let that go. It's easy for us to let it go because there's so much so much harm and so much silliness about, you know, Jesus is the friend of sinners and we tritely talk about that and it gets denigrated down to the point where Jesus is now our buddy. He's our homeboy. He's our pal. And that's wrong and it's stupid. But we can hyper-respond to that, you understand? By cutting that out of the rich tapestry of who he is and then have no sensitivity or awareness of the fact he is the friend of sinners. We dare not do away with that. We so desperately need that friend for we are sinners. And we must mourn that and feel his arms and know his care. Broken, mourning for sin, the canon must turn to him for comfort. Last point, last thing. That's not a point. I'm in the conclusion, so it's not a point. Um, last thought. How, how does the Lord receive us, though? Okay, I'm mourning. I'm broken. How does he receive us when I come to him that way? We're not left to guess. We're told again, again, and again. And I'm going to read to you a passage from John 8, a narrative text. Jesus' own ministry that tells us something of that. John 8. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. How does the Lord receive us when we come to him broken in our sin and mourning? He 
does not turn us away. He receives us, and gladly so, and speaks a word of blessing upon us. So we have no need to turn elsewhere, do we? Not with a friend like that. Do we, do we have a need then to turn elsewhere if we have a friend like that? No. But you see, that's the problem. We do. Our default mode is to keep turning our back and not the face. We'll, we'll deny it. We'll, we'll deny that there's any culpability or guilt or fault or, you know, well, hey, it's they did, you know, 50%, 51%, whatever. We'll deny it. We'll suppress it. We'll spin it. Or if we don't just outright deny it, we'll, well, okay, we'll suppress it. We'll drown it. We'll drown it maybe with something in a bottle. Or maybe we'll just flee. Maybe we'll just run. That's how we'll suppress it. We'll just run from the places or the people or the relationships that have this obnoxious way of reminding us just by their physical presence of what we've done wrong. And so we'll just, we're out of here. We'll deny it. Well, maybe we'll suppress it. No, 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 maybe we'll just distract ourselves. Maybe we'll just get busy and, and, and a little more busy. Maybe we'll meddle. Meddle with other people and their affairs. Maybe we just will check our Facebook status for the 30th time in the last hour. Maybe we'll, did you know that, by the way, you know what the average age is for gamers? 31. Maybe we'll play a game. Maybe we'll watch football three games in one day. You can do that today if you want. And I'm not saying that's why we do those things, but those are means by which we try and deal with the unrest instead of going to the one who gives us rest. Our consciences are, are, are plaguing us. There's a weight upon us, and instead of going to the one who has borne all of that, have taken it upon himself, instead of really being broken and mourning for our sin and going to the one who can take care of it, I mean, is it not, I'm not saying, is that easy? No. Is it natural? No. But he promises to help us. He promises to teach us. And what he's saying is, you can finally deal with it. You can finally really mourn it. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, if we were but to take the time to pause, we would see how much indeed we have to mourn. Because the fall is real. And so in this world, there is much to mourn. And in the lives of those around us that we care for, there is much to mourn. But, oh God, in our own hearts, in our own lives, there is so much a world, in, in a sense, within to mourn. If we were to pause. But, God, we confess that's so hard for us to do because we don't like what we see. And so we keep turning away. And you and your love keep pursuing and pressing a weight upon our hearts. And it's a mercy, but a severe mercy, but a mercy still. 
And we pray that you would help us to respond as you intend for us to with bended knee and outstretched hands and a quieted heart that is willing to lament because of the safety and security we have in you. Thank you for going through the exile and the lament for us that we could give our lament up to you. 